Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord Jesus Christ, you who promised that when two or three are gathered in your name, you would be here among us. We ask you to send down your Holy Spirit upon this gathering. Open our mind and our hearts to your will for our life, that we might walk in your ways and give glory to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Okay, well, thank you, Father, and uh, thank you for indulging me. So uh, what I'm going to do today is talk a little bit about this process of reflection um, having established this routine of prayer and meditation, uh, which I talked about last week, and he, David was very clear he wouldn't progress until he knew that this was a habit, that in a sense this ensured that connection with God that protected me while I was uh, examining my conscience. And what this process did was root out the causes of my unhappiness. Now, this is was important in the discernment process in that um, if I'm going to be listening to God's call, uh, I will be distracted by uh, resentment, guilt, fear, all the various manifestations of unhappiness. They separate me from God, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about why. And so also I can't be sure as to what my motivations are for wanting to do anything. Uh, I need as far as possible to clear this, this stuff out. And this is a systematic way of doing this. And the great benefit and, and of this is that it really does, uh, or in my experience, it deepens the, uh, the relationship with God dramatically. So remember, I was coming from atheism, and I'd made a start. I, I had started this prayer and meditation and was feeling a change. Uh, but as a result of this next phase, which is a deep examination of conscience, making a, um, a, a list of people that I have damaged or harmed, and then making restitution, which is really just like confession in the church. It's one of the reasons I became Catholic uh, was because of the correspondence to this of, of confession. But uh, the result for me was a, a transformation in character, a, a, a dramatic change in personality. So whereas previously I was pessimistic and given to uh, cynical cynicism, and if I was humorous, it was always cynical and rather nasty. And I used to try and um, persuade people to be unhappy with me. There's a phrase, misery likes company. And that was certainly true for me. If I met somebody who was happy, especially if they were Christian, I really took it upon myself to uh, undermine their faith, to, to tell them they were wrong, uh, which sounds absurd. If I'd, if I'd been sane, the thing I would have done is say to them, uh, to, what are you doing that I'm not? How do you understand life in such a way that I don't? But my pride wouldn't allow me to do that, really, until the point where I was beaten, uh, I was desperate, and I met, I happened to meet David, and I was ready to take direction. So in the process of this, I had to consider uh, the cause of my unhappiness, and I'll explain this in a second, and uh, see how uh, powerful this process is. Um, incidentally, I'm not going to, to go in detail through the handouts. There's a lot of text there, and I'm not going to be uh, reading them out. What I'm doing is giving you a general picture that speaks to the detail that's given in these handouts. So some of you will have read it before, in which case you'll recognize 
what I'm talking about. Others will, might be curious and they, they can go and get more detail from this. Um, but I just want to give you one story just to keep you focused as well on this idea of the process of discernment, which is really the fun bit at the end. Uh, we haven't got there yet. And this is uh, w- when I was asked that question. Uh, I think I mentioned this a little bit last week. What would you do if you, if, you, if you inherited so much money you never needed to work again for the money? I just said, paint. And so David said, okay, that's what you should do. And he said, there are two ways. One is to do a, a lateral move to where people are painting. So you might get it of any sort, and then uh, you, you get in there any way you can. So he said, for example, get a job as a janitor in an art school, and then you find that you will gradually start doing what those around you are doing. And uh, the other way is to, to start talking to people who are doing what you want to do. And uh, so I did that, and someone said, well, you should just sign on doing life drawing classes. Uh, this is what I would do. Uh, and uh, so I went to Chelsea College of Art and did a, a, a life drawing class every Wednesday. Um, and I remember saying to David, this is, this is going to take forever. I mean, I, um, I'm 26. Uh, I can't afford to take time off and do a degree. I don't know where to get the, the full training anyway. Uh, but it's going to be about 80 years of evening classes before I can even become an artist. And he said to me, it doesn't work like that. You just take the first step and don't worry if this is meant to be, God will show you how this is going to happen. Uh, So you have to take a leap of faith. And that was important because if I didn't have faith at that time, uh, I would probably have given up and I would have been too fearful. I was full of fear for the future um, when when I started this process Even if I had something that was good, I was afraid I was going to lose it. If I had something that was bad, I was afraid it was going to get worse. And um, I just generally was nervous and anxious about trying to manage all my surroundings to my satisfaction and uh, very afraid, really, of the future. So this process removed all of that. And I believe let God's grace in. So I feel that I changed despite myself. I just had enough willingness and uh, trust. Uh, so you'd say sort of faith and hope that the, the, the kernel of this, uh, to do what was uh, David was uh, directing me to do. Uh, but from that mustard seed, um, a lot more has, has grown. Um, but I had to make those steps, and then things started to come to me. So I did these evening classes at Chelsea College of Art. And I did a couple of them, and I couldn't see where, there was, where this was going. And I was saying to David, well, when's this, when's this door going to open? I mean, how long do I carry on doing these life drawing classes? And David just said, be patient. And then what happened is that the teacher approached me and said, you obviously like to draw. Um, and, um, are very, and he's, he said he thought that I was uh, talented at it, actually which was nice. And he said, I paint in a medium called egg tempera, uh, which is quite difficult to use. And um, it's an unusual paint that was used in the Middle Ages. And um, I like it because it seems to me that like you, I, I, um, I like to, do, to draw and I want to do a painting that's faithful to a drawing. I'm not one of those people who sort of gradually puts it on roughly, which is the way that a lot of oil painters work. You do a rough thing and then gradually refine it, sort of getting closer and closer on the canvas. Um, I like to to plan the thing out. Um, And he said, go down to the National Gallery in London and just look at the medieval artists in the new Sainsbury Wing, as as it was just opened uh, in the National Gallery. So I went down there and I saw these Gothic uh, paintings. And I said, oh, this looks good. I'd like to do that. So he uh, suggested that I, I try it. Now, um, he incidentally, he was Catholic and had a faith. And so I think part of him was trying to introduce me to this as well, actually. But what he said to me is, is he, he told me how to uh, use this medium. And it was, it was difficult. 
I was actually doing it out of tubes, which is what he did. You buy it from a shop like conventional paint. And it, it is awkward to use. And I remember I was having a conversation with somebody struggling with this medium. And I, I've since lost contact with him. And I have no idea how he was aware of these people. But what he said to me, because he wasn't orthodox, what he said to me is, I know somebody who paints in egg tempera, and his name is Athanasius Ledwich, and he's, a, he's an orthodox priest. And I thought, well, this is the strangest name I've ever heard. Um, and it turns out that he was a convert. He had been an Anglican priest to become an orthodox priest, and I was given his address. So I wrote to him and just said, your name has been given to me, and I would just like to ask you to, if I could come and see you, just show me how you paint in this medium egg tempera. And about two weeks later, I got a, a letter back from um, Aidan Hart, who is an icon painter and is still my, I still have contact with him today. He became my teacher. But it turned out that um, Father Athanasius Ledwich had never touched a paintbrush in his life. He, he had, he'd never done this. He'd never painted. He'd got this letter from me and just passed it on to the, the nearest icon painter that he knew. And this was Aiden Hart. And so Aiden Hart just phoned me up out of the blue. And uh, he was a, a monk at this stage. Uh, and he said, come and stay with me and uh, I'll show you everything you can learn. And in the process of that visit, he introduced me to icons. I'd never seen them. I was just interested in the medium. I didn't know anything about sacred art, um, and I was introduced to him. Aidan, I, I asked him later why he was prepared uh, to invite me. He didn't know who I was. Um, and he just said that it became apparent, uh, talking to me, that I was interested and I loved doing it. And he just said, if you love something, you'll learn it. And I said, but you didn't know whether I was any good at painting. And this was true about Father Timothy Verdon, and it was true about other people that I asked. Uh, they didn't ask what seemed to be the obvious question when I said I wanted to be an artist. How good are you? Um, and Aidan just said to me, he said, look, the skills can be learned. The main thing is that you love to do it. Um, if it's something you love to do, you will work at the skills. You can always come up to a, a reasonable level. And so that's how I met Aidan Hart. And it was through a, a string of uh, chance conversations, um, just as David had described. And so I just mentioned that to you, uh, just to encourage people uh, uh, to believe in this principle that you don't have to have everything planned or to know exactly how it, it's going to work. You just need to take that first step and trust that if it's, if it's meant to be, God will show you the rest. Remember, pray for rain and dig for water. And uh, the, another principle is uh, work like your life depends on you and pray like your life depends on God. Uh, we do both. And God always does far more, in my experience, than I do. So let's come back to this, this stage. I'm ready now to consider... Moving forward, I've, I'm, I've started this routine and um, I'm ready to uh, go through the process. And what I had to do was acknowledge that, uh, and I, this was really through conversation with David, that I am the cause of my own unhappiness. This was not easy for me to believe. I, I was convinced really at this point, up, up to this point anyway, that I was happy or unhappy dependent upon what happened to me. It's, what, it's the relationships I had, the people who are around me, the things that I had, and if only they would be right, then everything would be fine and I would be happy. And to a greater or lesser extent, this, this is the, what I was obsessed with, was trying to arrange these things around me. Now, by the time I got to meeting David, I'd, it had begun to dawn on me that even if everything happened as I wished it to happen, uh, I'm not sure I would have been happy. And, and that was the point of despair, that I didn't even know what I was trying to manage any longer. It, I had this insight that, um, 
that it wasn't my surroundings. And when there's no God, when there's nothing to really replace it, uh, the true cause of my happiness, uh, it's a very, very lonely and unhappy place to be. And that's where I was. And that's why I was ready to change. And it's it's a fearful place. I was anxious for the future, really. And um, I just didn't know where my life was heading. And so we discussed this. And David would do little things. So he introduced the subject right at the beginning. Um, he used to give people these stickers. Those are about this big, so an inch long and three-quarters of an inch wide. And he handed this to me and said, put this on your shaving mirror so that you see it every day. And it said, you are now looking at the problem. Um, and so he was trying to suggest to me that when I'm unhappy, there's something wrong in me. It doesn't mean that there is no evil or there is no injustice. It's, it's, it doesn't mean that at all. But the, the thing that uh, governs my happiness is my response to it. And really, left to my own devices, um, I will be unhappy. I simply am unable to respond uh, happily. The only thing, and we heard this earlier, that can give me that happiness is God. It's God's grace. And so the first cause of my unhappiness is internally a rejection of God's grace, which I've heard recently described as acedia, which is sometimes translated as sloth in the seven deadly sins. But God, I believe, is always there, whether I acknowledge him or not, uh, prompting me as best he can to do what is right. And uh, if I don't follow those directions, then I will be unhappy. Now, I didn't know how to change at this stage. I needed uh, these techniques. Um, not everyone's like this, but I did. And so those three acknowledgements that I, that I uh, give in the handout, uh, the first three principles of our eight principle process, are really just a formal structuring of that principle that um, I am unhappy. I am the, the cause of my unhappiness, not what I think it is, not the external events, um, that I cannot change myself. As David used to say, a, a sick mind can't cure a sick mind. I can't think myself better. Um, it needs something beyond me, and only God can do it. And this was where I had to just take it on trust that there is a God. So this is where it comes back to this introduction to, that I had to God where David just said, just act as though there is one who loves you and wants you to be happy and just see how your life improves, see what happens. And so um, this was a very, very significant step for me or three steps, if we can call it that. But uh, they didn't involve a massive change in me at that point. It was simply a decision to go on. And the change occurred when I started to take the actions that uh, were a consequence of it. And as I say, the overall change in me as a result of this process of reflection and actually looking at the, uh, the causes of my unhappiness was dramatic in, in my life. And... Uh, the, the other thing that I want to mention is that I, I think I did, I can't remember what I said last time, that one of the conditions that David made in order to help me, he, he said, I will help you. But one, um, I'm not going to spend time arguing with you. Uh, so uh, I'm going to tell you what to do. Uh, if you do it, that's great. But if you don't, if you don't, that's fine. But I'm not going to waste my time trying to persuade you. Either you do it or you don't. This depends on the action. There are other people who want to do this, and I'm not going to waste my time on you. So I thought, fine, I, I will do that. And uh, the other thing is that he said that if this works, I want you to promise me that you'll be prepared to pass this on to other people, to help others. And I remember thinking, how am I going to find anybody who wants to do this? And he just said, uh, you know, this is part of your path. Part, uh, uh, he didn't. I can't remember how he described it precisely, but... Today, I would say this is part of your personal vocation, is to, to um, help people in the same way. And so that, that I've tried to do that as best I can. 
and I realize that that's a, a necessary part of the of my happiness actually is being prepared to help others as long along with all everything else it's love of God and love of man and so being ready to be of service to others and to help others is really important uh, and as, as David said this is this is why I'm helping you so how do we attack our unhappiness he talked about resentments and fear and uh, an account of my sex conduct, which was a very personal conversation, which I'm not going to go into here. But what he told me about was all unhappiness that we, we were examining is uh, in the form of some sort of bad feeling about what happened in the past, that is resentment, or the anticipation that something's going to go wrong in the future. And that's fear. And all of that is caused by my self-centeredness, thinking about myself. It's not caused by love of others or love of God. And so what we did, and I, I go through the process, precise sort of form of the analysis in the handout, is we just listed all of these um, examples of regret for the past. And some of them are very minor, and some of them are huge significant events in my life. So the, the sort of examples that I included that I can that I can talk about, so some, some of these are so personal, and David encouraged me to talk to him by revealing aspects of his personal life. But uh, it was I remember one particularly, and it's an example I give in the book, where when I was eight, I was playing, it was in the north of England where I grew up, the evenings are long. It stays light until 10, 10.30 uh, in the summer uh, at night. And uh, it was 8 o'clock, and my dad came out and said, right, David, it's time to go to bed. And I was with all my friends. They were all allowed to stay out. I had to go to bed earlier than all of them. And I remember I, I wanted to stay out. I was very bad-tempered, and I was extremely cross with Dad, but eventually I went off to bed. Now, strange as it may seem, at, at the age of 26, I still had this memory. <laughs> and uh, I knew why, by the time I was 26 why Dad had done this. So it's not like I, I couldn't see the logic behind it. it was, he was doing it for good reasons. But I, I wrote that down as a, as, as a resentment from the past. Um, I also included uh, thoughts, dark thoughts that I, I would have. And, I, and again, I'm... I'm not going to reveal these to you. I, I told David, but David surprised me by just saying, uh, you too, or in fact, he offended me because he's just said, you're an average person. Everybody thinks these things, which, which just gave me a resentment against him because I thought I was uh, unique and different. But the point he was making is that uh, very few people have a chance to talk about what is what they're thinking. Uh, and it scared me. I just thought, I, I mean, I'm not joking. I'd be locked up if people knew the thoughts that crossed my mind. Most of them, I, you know, I didn't act on them. I, I wasn't doing bad things, thank goodness. Uh, some do, I know. But, um, you know, I had to acknowledge that I, uh, that I felt these things but because I felt so guilty. Uh, and this was crippling me. I, you know, and sometimes I couldn't look people in the eye because I, I, all, I just you know, wondered if they knew what was going on in my mind. And um, it was a very uncomfortable place to be. And now I have a way of being free of this. And um, so I would do this analysis where I'd write the nature of it in these columns that I, I describe. And at the end, we would break down the form of self-centeredness into these self-centered impulses uh, that are based on the seven deadly sins. David didn't use the word, I think he called them self-centered impulse. I've forgotten precisely what he called them. He didn't use the word sin, I, again, because I would have run a long way if he'd said that. Um, but I now believe that, that, that it is sin. And uh, I have a particular idea of that. So um, what I mean by sin is not simply that I'm doing something that offends the law of God, in that, in the way that we normally think about it, I've done something that is bad or breaks the Ten Commandments. It's simply that I'm. It's a state of separation from God. By focusing on myself, I am 
excluding God in some way, and I feel bad. And so if, there's, if I am to blame, it's by indulging these things, by continuing to think them. I, I can't help them when they occur for the first time. And that was a relief to know that. So some of the passions are involuntary, and we just don't know what's going to pop into our mind. Uh, but I don't need to indulge them or to feel bad about them. Um, but I was certainly, through my self-centeredness, I thought that I was sort of my, charmingly shy, perhaps. And I realized that actually I was hostile to others. I was resentful. And I, 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 for the most part, I didn't express it. Uh, but um, I certainly had to change inwardly. And so I wrote all of this down. Um, the, the fears was the same thing. What I did was I just imagined that it, that it had happened and how would I be affected um, if it had happened? Would my pride be hurt? Would I be worrying about what people thought about me? Would I be affected monetarily, in which case it's greed, something like this. So you just write these things down. Um, and I found that all my fears were pretty much related to worries about myself and that when I can trust in God, I don't need to be fearful. Um, now, I should say that w what happened is that I wrote this down. There was a lot in my case that I wrote down, um, including the big things that just popped into my head. So um, if I just say to you now, uh, just tell me you know, what's wrong in your life. I, uh, as David used to say, I am not happy uh, and, and joyful and free because whatever pops into your mind, um, if the answer isn't I'm not closer to God, then that's the problem, <laughs> okay? And most of us will have something will have come into mind. If only this would change, if only that were different, if only this hadn't happened. Um, those are the things that uh, were crippling me at any rate. And to see that it's my response to those events was a great freedom. Um, and I had to tell David, and this is a sort of confession, really, where I just read these things out. For the most part, he didn't comment very much. Uh, one thing he did say to me uh, was that in regard to my parents, I, I came from a good home. Where my parents were good and loving parents, but it didn't stop me being ungrateful and in some ways, bitter. And again, it wasn't necessarily reflected so much in what I did to them. I was neglectful, I would say, as a son, rather than um, angry or rebellious. Uh, but never, and I certainly had to make amends to them. I had to go and ask for forgiveness at the end of this process uh, when I saw that. Um, but what David said to me is that... Uh, that no, there is no such thing as the perfect parents. Um, he said, um, th there's certainly injustice in the home. Sometimes it's grave, uh, but for the most part, generally, parents are doing what they think is right and probably just following the example of their parents. And the way we break the cycle is not by blaming or t justifying how we are as a result of this, but by forgiveness. And he, and he told me to pray for all these people that I was resentful to until I felt better, as well as going through this process of acknowledging uh, that the, the grudge, if you like, the uh, resentment that I had, the grievance that I bore is my problem, and it's separating me from God and from them, whatever, regardless of what's happening in their lives. And so I did this, and, and this was a lot of work. I took a week off work. I wrote this out. I went to see him. It was several Thursday evenings. I remember I used to go around to his apartment, and uh, and I just described this stuff to him. It was not fun. Um, after I got the big things off my chest, it wasn't even frightening. It was just boring and just reading it out. <laughs> but he, he just uh, did this. Um, but the the release that I got from this was profound. Uh, um, I cannot tell you how different a person I am from the person who was at that stage. Uh, and this opened the door to not only the art career, as it is, uh, that I have, but to the, to the faith, to the church, to a whole new basis of relationships, which I couldn't have imagined. And the, there was a couple of things that are important here is that 
it's not simply just the process. Um, I really believe that to have this person, to look at this person in the eye and say these things, and in such a way that I, I, I believe God was present. I, this, this is not sacramental confession. It's not in the, in the you know, with, with a priest. Uh, but I, I, it's so powerful, and what happened was so real that I do believe that in some way it was participate and a, a participation in that. It's the same uh, s- sort of process going on, um, and uh, it's it was extremely powerful. And so uh, that was the uh, that process. Um, now there is a question. There are two questions that often crop up, and I'm going to finish a little earlier this time because this is something that people normally want to discuss. Uh, one is surely there are some things that uh, we, we, you know, we are justified in being unhappy, and I talk about this uh, in the book, and so I've got no definite answers on this. I will just say that my belief, everything I've had to face in life, I found that I can bear what I've been given uh, as a result of this and be happy inside at some level. You ask me, I might say I'm not happy about this or I'm very unhappy about that or I wish that hadn't happened. But through this process, there is a consolation that transcends the suffering. So um, when something bad happens to me, and there is injustice, there's no doubt about that, um, that what I want to happen is that there's the situation changes. So I will pray and ask for it, but quite often that doesn't happen. But my experience is that this is uh, rather like, uh, well, it's th- there is a consolation that transcends it. So otherwise, it doesn't necessarily remove what is bad or even the injustice of it. Uh, it's still there, but the consolation is greater and it allows me to bear it. Um, and I would read, I, I often wonder, does this mean I can bear anything? I, I don't know. But I would look at people who had the saints um, who were praising God as their limbs were being eaten up by flames. Uh, the letters of Thomas More, St. Thomas More, asking his daughter not to be distressed about his situation because he had a, a chance to be of service to his prisoners. Um, there's a Ukrainian saint who I found who was, I've forgotten his name actually, but during the Second World War, he was in a, a concentration camp and was tortured. And he wrote to his daughter saying, please don't petition for my release because I find the greatest joy being here and being able to be of service to those around me. Now, I'm not going to claim that <laughs> I'm in their class as a person. Uh, but it does encourage me to believe that what God uh, uh, permits in my life and what he asks me to deal with, uh, he's giving me the grace as well to bear this as a Christian. And so far, so good. And uh, I've had bad things happen in my life. I don't, I don't want to uh, start sort of getting into competitive negativity, but you know, it's, uh, great, amazing things have happened. I've talked about these uh, these coincidences of, you know, how my vocation has been realized, but I've had the downs in life as well. And the, the great thing is that through this, it, what is what it has done uh, when faced with these situations is that it has drawn me closer to God. I, I, some of the, the most difficult things I've had to deal with in my life have been in the last few years. Uh, I remember as, as these things were occurring, uh, I could have gone either way. I could have despaired and said, this isn't working, God isn't with me, the whole thing's a sham. Or I could have done, thank goodness, I did what I did, uh, which is because I had the habits that had been instilled in me of this process of prayer, of meditation, of looking at the causes of my unhappiness. These have been drilled into me right from the start. I just doubled down on them, of trying to be of service to others, forcing myself to try to do what is good for other people, even when I don't feel like it. I sort of doubled down on this, and I experienced a consolation that was greater than the what was happening. And the experience has just intensified my faith. And so 
I just share that as my my experience. Um, so the other th- the other question that occurs to people is one of scrupulousness because you can get into great detail here and deal with very small things. And so this is not this is different in many ways. I mean, I don't know what people say when they go to confession because I've only ever heard my own in the you know in the confessional. But what I tend to do is is go perhaps monthly. And we'll deal with sort of general patterns of behavior and maybe one or two major things. I can't get into everything that occurs during the course of the day. With this, what happens is that when something happens to me, I can just stop myself and and just recognize in a general way, oh, that's my self-centeredness. And many times that will just it will just evaporate. I'll move on and I'll forget about it. But at other times, I just notice, it's like it's in my peripheral vision. There's something bugging me, there's something bugging me. Like having a stone in your shoe and you realize that you've been, it's been there for the last three miles and it suddenly gets painful enough. And I, so daily I do a review of my conscience and I just pick out the things that I remember. I don't search for things that I've forgotten or aren't bothering me at that point. But I look upon this as an opportunity to write them down. There's always one or two things that have bothered me. And that I can deal with in this way and ask God for forgiveness. And so some people worry that it might lead to scrupulosity. What I would say is that uh, I don't think that's the case. Uh, And I'd be interested to know thoughts on this from people. But for me, if it's true, then it's good. That If I'm dealing with things that are genuine, then I have the luxury, if you like, of getting into the small things because I've dealt with the big things uh, in a powerful way, that is good. For me, what should we, I just talk of my own tendency to scrupulosity. It is not so much that I'm getting overly detailed. It's that I'm doubting God's mercy. The problem is, is, is that I just don't believe that God will forgive me. And so I keep bringing things up that I've confessed, if you like, and keep uh, dwelling on these things that actually, I, once I've acknowledged... I can be free. And David actually, the way he put it to me was when I was saying, I'm doing these things, they're not going. And he just said, you're being arrogant. What, what are you talking about? He said, well, God forgives you and you won't forgive yourself. And that helped me. And I, I know that's, that he didn't invent that. I've heard other people say that. I, I think the, the difficulties in this and the neuroses that can develop, uh, I'm just talking my own experience occur when I doubt God's infinite mercy. And what I'm doing is I'm bringing God down to my level. Please forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's not a command to be as bad at forgiving. You know, I'm not asking God to be as poor at forgiving others as I am. It's saying really the the ideal is God and I want to move towards that. Um, And I think that is something that I continually have to tell myself. That's why I write the gratitude list every day. Um, And David was continually reassuring, this is a God of love. He wants you to be happy. Um, He's showing you a way that uh, this is not a veil of tears once we accept God's love. Without him, it is. Uh, But there is suffering, there is evil, but there is a a happiness as well uh, through the consolation that God gives us. And so uh, that's the... um, rooting out of my unhappiness. And I, I, as, as I mentioned, I added this to my daily routine. And I do this daily. I, I look at just what the one or two things that are bugging me. Uh, and it's a great luxury that I have that. Um, and I just quickly asked for God's forgiveness. Uh, the other thing that I did was that if I'd harmed people, I'd, I'd caused damage in people's lives, I had to get, approach them, uh, repay debts, and uh, ask for forgiveness. Uh, and the one thing I do remember about that, I got some specific instructions from David on how to approach people. Um, he said, don't say sorry. He said, no one is interested in how you feel. He said, ask for forgiveness. And I'd said sorry a million times uh, about things, but it was different to ask people to forgive me. And I, I approached my parents, actually, who I'd neglected, I felt. Uh, my mum just gave me a hug. And, you know, almost wouldn't let me finish the sentence. He says, of course I do. And you didn't need to do it. Uh, my dad, uh, to my shock, acknowledged that I'd harmed him. <laughs> and then he forgave me. 
but he did acknowledge, you know, that, that I'd, I'd harmed him uh, through my neglect. I don't know how many people ever get a chance to do that. It's not something I, I did not enjoy the experience. I can tell you, I had to prepare the script and just say it almost mechanically. But it changed my relationship with my dad forever. Actually, I think I'll stop there, and just to say that next week we'll get on to the fun stuff and talk about the how, this discernment process that father was getting into. Uh, but this, without this, I don't think there's any path ahead that's without fear and w- with it which we're able to listen to God's call uh, with any degree of certainty. And that's why it was so important. And so much more came to me this in terms of my faith and my life as a result of this. So I'll stop there. Thank you, Professor Clayton, for a, a really a beautiful time together, very, very uh, um, reflective, beautiful guide in the spiritual life. Um, you know, I was thinking here, I had in my pocket a little bottle of holy oil, and I intentionally brought a little holy oil. I, I always try to keep some on me. I'm a priest, so you never know when someone needs to be anointed, but I'm going to the 10th anniversary, and I thought someone's going to want me to pray over them. So I brought it with me, and I, but I always, I oftentimes think, you know, how we in the in the church we we have we have the sacramental system right we have bread and oil and water and this transformation that takes place and how beautiful that is and what a gift that is but but ultimately ultimately those the transformation of the of these kind of material realities are to be at service of the transformation of of people and and uh, if God can do this with oil and bread and wine and water. What a miracle he can accomplish in our life if we open to that. Uh, there's questions coming in down the Q&A box. Mr. Martin. The um, review of conscience, I, I heard you say, um, you know, we don't have to be getting into scrupulosity about it, but you mentioned like two forms. Sometimes you catch yourself and you also do a, re- a review every day. Is there one that you find more helpful yeah, the way that I do this is that, I, I mean, I don't want to be unhappy. So it, I, I'm not asking myself, what have I done wrong? The question I ask myself is, what do I feel unhappy about? That's the first thing. So therefore, I want to change that, if I can, with God's help. So what happens is that sometimes somebody does something, you know, the classic sort of example would be the sort of, you know, somebody cuts you off in traffic. What's the first thing you want to do? Probably not, doesn't bear repeating. Okay, so that's the first thought that goes in your mind. And then instantly I just think, well, that's silly. It's self-centered. I I don't need to do that. I don't need to respond. And I might forget from that point on. So that's fine. Um, Sometimes I don't even need to think about that. I just move on. You know, at at a deeper level, I just move on and, you know, I'm not like that. And it doesn't, doesn't linger. Uh, but it's just that some of those things, um, I just, when I sit back and think, you know, you have that feeling. Sometimes it's obvious that I'm so angry that if I don't do something about it right now, I'm going to have to deal with it. So then I might grab a scrap of paper if I can, or at least do a mental analysis of what it is and pray for forgiveness and pray for the person uh, because I don't I don't want to be like that. But uh, typically, what happens is I sort of, is that I just it, it sort of creeps up on me. I just bear the grudge. I bear the grudge, and then when I I think I'm just not feeling all quite right. What is? Oh yeah, I know what it is, and and then I write it down. Um, so uh, I, it's just really just the more powerful ones. Um, the other thing that I'm, I might mention, I didn't talk about how I deal with this, how I combine this with uh, my general. You know, when I confess, when I go to confession. What I do is I describe the general patterns of behavior. I've been proud and I've been fearful about my financial situation. uh, And I realize that it's a lack of trust of God and I just want to bring this. So I might talk about general patterns and then, of course, any sort of major things. But I I don't go into the detail of what I wrote down in my daily analysis uh, at, at all. Mariana is asking the question, isn't there a risk that by delving into old resentments that you may end up reinforcing them by bringing them to mind? Uh, Well, there's a risk. And that's why David was adamant that I should be uh, uh, doing this daily routine um, before I even did this. 
he he would not even show me the process until he knew that he'd become a habitual in my life. The other thing I would say is that I, we say delving. Um, don't get confuse this with a sort of Freudian exploration of the subconscious. This this is a this is an examination of the conscious mind. So uh, these things are on your mind because they're there anyway. We're dealing with the things that come up that you that you remember that are in your memory, um, and so it, this is a way of releasing things that are bothering you anyway. They're already they're already there causing the damage. In, in you because they're, you're thinking about them. And so this is a way of releasing them. And uh, all I would say is that uh, the other thing is that there's no analysis beyond this simple writing them down. I'd, people who've been to therapy want to, want to go further. They want to sort of talk about the causes in a different sort of way, psychological influences and this sort of thing. Now, that may have value in some settings, but that is very different from what this is. This is simply saying, Whatever the, the cause, whatever the justice of the situation, this is why I am unhappy, and it's because of my self-centeredness. And so it offers a solution without looking at the cause in the way that a therapist would. So you don't dwell on it. Once you've written it down and asked for forgiveness, move forward. Draw a line under it and go forward. We don't do it. We don't spend a long time thinking about it. Rebecca is asking, how can you make someone else feel comfortable enough to share personal information with you? Well, uh, you can't make someone, uh, in a way. I'll give an example. My brother asked me to do this. I'm sure he won't mind me saying. but And I offered to help him. He'd seen the change in me. He knew me before. He knew me afterwards. And many years later... Something happened, and, and I said, look, why don't you try this? And so he was ready to trust me. And uh, the way that David built up the trust in me was by, first of all, gradually revealing aspects of himself. So he would talk to me about what he had done uh, and what the thoughts that he had. And because he did this, I trusted him. But at any point... He was very clear that this that if I didn't trust him or I didn't feel comfortable, wait, don't, you know, don't feel bound to this. And so that that was the way that he did it. He just offered things from his own experience. And th- this is the, the the one thing I wanted to say is the importance of this. When there's a loving interaction between two people, which is what this is, he's giving of himself to help me. I believe that God is present there um, as well. And I felt this even more strongly when I started to do this with others. And I would hear things. uh, I've even been into prisons and offered this. And uh, the the one thing that makes me know that this is not a psychological process is that I thought David was giving me all this personal wisdom. He was a wise man. I thought he was fantastic. I couldn't believe I'd met him. But I knew that I didn't know anything more than he told me. And when I passed this on to these other people and they changed, and I knew that I, there was none of me in this, there was none of my personal wisdom, and it worked for them. That convinced me that there's something supernatural going on. There, that We are protected, I think, in this process. Uh, Melanie, I'm going to come over to you and ask you to take yourself off a of mute now and uh, go ahead. Uh, Professor Clayton, two thoughts or questions. Number one, I'm just wondering if the terms happy or unhappiness are the best terms to use, considering some of the connotations that those carry. Uh, it seems like some of what you're you're talking about is delving a bit deeper. I'm also wondering, just soul or spirit or mind, what's the connection? What role does the body play in reorienting reorienting oneself? Two questions. I'll deal with the happy one first. I deliberately use the word happy, and I don't make a distinction between happiness and joy, for example, which is what I hear a lot of people do. The reason for that is that I I would say that there are um, depths of happiness, and there are some happiness happiness is superficial and temporary, some is deep. Okay, and so I explain that in the book. But what I don't want to do, typically, what happens is that people, when I talk to people, especially in the church, actually, it happens less outside, 
is that people want to believe that through Christ, uh, we have a happy life. And then they nuance it by saying, we have joy, but you may not be happy. And I say, look, we know what happiness is. <laughs> if you have to explain to somebody what it is to be happy, we, we instinctively know at the deepest level what this is. And once you talk, if you talk of depths of happiness and permanence or superficiality, um, it's a, it is a good feeling. I really do mean that that's what it is. There isn't this sort of joy where I'm technically happy, but I don't feel it or something like that, which is sometimes what I think I hear people say. And I, I've, so I've deliberately used the word happiness so that we don't get into that discussion. What was the other one? It was about, well, I've forgotten this, the second question. What was it? The role of the body. In okay. Terms- yeah. So th- th- I, I mentioned a little bit about this. David was adamant that, um, that I should, the posture counted, that, that I should get on my knees and pray and, and engage, uh, engage the, the body in prayer, for example, and when I said when I uh, wrote the gratitude list down, I would actually physically pray. You know, I didn't just do it while I was in the shower saying, "Thank you, God," or something like that. Um, and he he said, you know, you need to engage the whole person. Sometimes, if you're kneeling, which is an attitude that everybody recognizes as humbling ourselves before one who is greater than us, sometimes the heart and mind follows. The other thing that I would say is that. Uh, Later on, uh, and this is something that was part of my journey, is that I believe that the the most profound encounter with God is worship. And so the the crowning glory of this, uh, which is really becoming, for me anyway, was becoming a a Christian and then actually uh, participating in the liturgy, So, which which engages the whole person as well. Uh, but I think I was primed for that by the fact that this did involve actions. And it's the same with the, his emphasis on getting involved in helping others. He, he insisted that I, I commit a week weekly to something voluntary, he said, where they can't give return it to you and take the action. And he said, you're not going to enjoy it. It's going to be boring. It's going to be dull. You're going to wonder what it's or sometimes it won't be. Sometimes it will. But it is important that you take those actions because if we want to feel good, we need to follow right actions. The other, the other one is, of course, uh, morality. I had to start leading a good and true life, and that led me to the church as well, finding out what that meant. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.